Our scripture reading for today is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. This is found on page 822 in your pew Bible. And if you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to take one as a gift from us. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Jake, for reading God's Word for us and for the testimony as well, along with uh, Caden. Uh, my name is Paul Brandis. I have the uh, pleasure of serving here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community as an associate pastor. Uh, one of my areas of focus is with our students, our 6th through 12th graders. So uh, I was uh, in that video a couple times as well, had the, the pleasure of doing Love KC with uh, almost 25 students just here from the Brookside campus, as well as then another about 40 students from our other campuses in Christian Fellowship Baptist Church. It was a wonderful few days. There was about 80 of us, including adults, that did love KC, and I would encourage you uh, to ask a student about it. Find one that went and ask them uh, about some things that you saw in the video there. If you are a student or a parent of a student, want to encourage you as well to get them signed up or get signed up for our other big event this summer, which is the first ever Brookside Summer Retreat. Uh, that's happening in just a couple weekends, and registration is still open for that. I think we will almost have as many students uh, on that as we did for Love KC, and this time it's uh, just a, a Brookside family event. We're excited about that. So if you are a student, 6th through 12th grade, or if you have a student, find Jake or myself. We'll get you signed up for that retreat. It's going to be amazing. Uh, before we dive into this scripture that Jake read for us, I'd like to pray. We need God's help uh, every week to understand his words. So let's bow his head and ask for it. Father in heaven, Psalm 127 says that unless you, the Lord, build the house, those who build it labor in vain. As we come to your Bible this morning, Father, I know that any of my efforts, any of our efforts are futile apart from the work that you do to make us new. So God, I ask you, like I do every time I have the pleasure of preaching, that where I speak my own words, please make them quickly fall away and be forgotten. But where I speak on your behalf, your word after you, please do the work of building us into a people who love and serve you and each other. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. Well, have you ever had a moment in your life where you thought, or, or maybe you even said out loud, uh-oh, I've made a huge mistake? I'm letting you think about it for a moment, because, because maybe the way to ask that question is, when was the last time in your life 
that you had a moment where you said, "Uh uh-oh, I made a huge mistake. Because that, my friends, is what we call a universal human experience, right? Making mistakes, even huge ones. Uh, One in my life from a few years ago is when some friends and I uh, foolishly decided that we were going to run the Wichita Marathon. Uh, and for, that's right, that is, that is funny. <laughs> and for your viewing pleasure this morning, I actually have a picture of us pre-race. I don't think you're ready for skinny short shorts, Paul. Uh, but here it is. There it is. That is, that is, yep, we don't need to clap. We can just kind of be like, whoa, what is going on there? Uh, and believe it or not, at, at this point, uh, I had not yet regretted my decision 30 minutes before the race. Uh, and, and then, actually, I, hadn't, I didn't even regret my decision right when the gun goes off. Because if you've run a race, whether it's a marathon or a 5K or whatever, you know that at that point, you've just got so much adrenaline going, right? So you're kind of going for it. No, I realized my mistake at mile number six. Mile number six. That's right. You all can do math. There's a lot more to go. <laughs> Mile number six, and here's why. Uh, At the start, for the first five miles, the marathon participants ran together with the half marathon participants. So for the first five miles, there were the 3,000 people that were signed up to go 13.1 miles, and then we split off at mile six, and only 600 people carried on to do the full 26.2. So, so picture this with me. For the first five miles, we're cruising along. There's a big crowd around us. You know, there's energy with the other runners. There's tons of people cheering us on. There's signs. There's like, there's a Paul sign. I'm going to pretend that guy's cheering for me, right? And then at mile six, three-fourths of the runners go that way, and we stay straight. And we weren't the only ones running. I mean, 600 people is still a lot, but it kind of felt like it was just the four of us running the 26.2. And there were maybe a few people on the roadways to cheer us on, but it wasn't enough to make a dent. So mile six is where I had my uh uh-oh, I've made a huge mistake moment with 20 miles still to go. We did complete it. We did finish it. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Come on. Yeah, there we go. That's right. And I haven't run since. (laughs) Uh, I look forward to hearing what your, uh, oh, uh uh-oh, I've made a mistake moment is later. And I do wonder uh, if in our passage today, which Jake read for us just a moment ago, I can't help but think that maybe Jesus actually had one of those moments, those uh uh-oh moments. Now, don't don't write that down. I'm not saying that Jesus really made a mistake. I don't believe that. But you have to consider what happens in this passage here. And then maybe you'll be with me, right? Because Peter makes this incredible confession of who Jesus is. This is an amazing, groundbreaking moment in the Bible. The entire Bible, this could be argued that this is the crux of it, what Peter says about who Jesus is. And then right after this, in the very next verse, the very next moment, Jesus reveals his plan for the earth. He reveals his playbook for the desperately needed earth renewal project. And his playbook stars wait for it, the church. That's right. Jesus' grand plan to redeem the whole earth is us, the church. We're it. The big idea of today's passage is we're the plan and there is no plan B. We're the plan and there is no plan B. And now think about the church with me for a moment. Because I think that this plan from Jesus is really one of the most shocking things that he ever says. I think that the primacy of the church is one of the most shocking tenets of the Christian faith. I mean, the church, really? 
Are you sure you didn't make a mistake, Jesus? We've all been hurt by the church, frustrated with the church, been bored in church. And beyond our own experiences, we can pull from any number of historical examples of how the church has blown it, of how the church has fallen short. Or even here at Christ Community, I love this church so much, more than any other local church I've ever come into contact with. I do. But we're not perfect. So far from it. And we all probably see the ways in which we're ineffective or the ways in which here at Christ Community we need improvement. I know I see those ways. But Jesus is clear in this passage. We're the plan and there is no plan B. And before we write him off, I think it's worth exploring the plan. I think it's worth examining what Jesus says in this passage about the church, about his plan A. And here's what we'll find. Three things. The first is this. The plan begins with a person. The second is that the plan is a call to action. And the third is that the plan will not fail. So first, the plan begins with a person. Back in our passage, in verse 13, this is how it reads. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite nickname for himself. So basically what Jesus is doing here at the start of our passage is he's asking his disciples what the word on the street is about himself. And now it's interesting that this happens. It's important that this happens in Caesarea Philippi and not in a Jewish town. Caesarea Philippi was an important Greco-Roman city and it was made up primarily of Syrians and Greeks. It was made up of non-Jews. It was made up of outsiders. Caesarea Philippi was a place known historically for its worship of Baal, an Old Testament idol, and then the Greek god of Pan, and then finally the emperor Caesar in this day and age. Here's actually the ruins of the temple of Pan. And, and, and this is the backdrop. This is the scene where Jesus is when he asks this question of his disciples. And this question is the question in the book of Matthew, isn't it? And we've been studying the book of Matthew for months now, and we've seen this question in one form or another all over the place. I think back to the very beginning of the book, where Jesus was just a baby, and there was a king, kind of like a, a pseudo-king, a, a sub-king, not the, the main Caesar, but, but a ruler of an area, Herod. And he was really, really worried about Jesus' status as king of the Jews. And he asks, he says, who is this child? And then as Jesus grows up and begins his, his vocational ministry, we see the crowds over and over again. What does Matthew say? He says that they are astonished at him. In Matthew chapter 8, after Jesus calms the violent storms, his own disciples can't even figure him out. Matthew records them as saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? At the end of Matthew 13, Jesus returns to his hometown, and he's met with derision by people who think they know who he is. Is this not the carpenter's son, they say? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Again, over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Matthew to this point, the question has basically been, who is this Jesus guy? And in verse 14 of our passage, the disciples sum up the opinion of the general public. 
Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You see, there were lots of theories about who Jesus was and is. But Jesus doesn't want to stay at the level of theory. No, he wants to go deeper. So he turns the question directly to his disciples. He turns the question directly to the men closest to him who should know the correct answer. Verse 15, but who do you say that I am? This is a big moment in the book of Matthew. Think about all the disciples have seen and experienced with Jesus. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him challenge the religious leaders. They've seen him feed and love the crowds, calm the storm, and love the worst of the worst. The disciples have seen enough. And Matthew, as an eyewitness, someone who actually saw this happen, right here at this point, he records the account where Jesus turns to his closest followers and he asks them point blank, okay, you've seen enough, you've experienced it enough, who do you think that I am? Who am I? And wouldn't you know it, Peter, the disciple most prone to putting his foot in his mouth, he totally nails it, complete home run. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We would be remiss to undersell the significance of this moment because you see Christ, Peter's confession of Jesus is not just the last name as if, as if it could have been Jesus Brandis or something. No, Christ is a title. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means chosen one or anointed one. Messiah, Christ, means Savior, King, our only hope. This, is a lot, this moment here in Matthew 16, 16 is a lot like Peter saying that Jesus is the true Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter or Frodo Baggins or Neo from the Matrix, right? The chosen one to make the world right again. But, but, but not just fiction, not just stories to entertain us. Peter is saying that's really who you are, the real and true flesh and blood chosen one, the one we've been waiting for, the one promised in the Old Testament, the one upon all of whom life and humanity rest, the one who by all things were created for and through, the one. And even more than that, as if that wasn't enough, Peter also says that Jesus is the son of the living God, a phrase that indicates divinity. So, so Peter, he's saying, not only, Jesus, are you God's chosen king, the one, but in a wonderfully mysterious way, you are God himself in the flesh right here with us in Caesarea of Philippi. You know, God's plan A for the world, the church, it does. It begins with a person, but not just any person. That's a capital P person, isn't it? That's Jesus. The church begins with Jesus. God's plan begins with Jesus, who, in Peter's words, is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who Jesus is, the chosen one. And you know, all this week, I haven't been able to shake Jesus' question because I'm convinced I'm convinced that it's important for us to answer more than 2,000 years later. You try to put yourself in the disciples' sandals for a moment because I think each one of us needs to answer Jesus' question for ourselves. So here it is. 
Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? I came across a website this week where people can submit their own responses to that question. It's really simple. Jesus is blank, and you fill in the blank. And here's just a a sampling of the answers. Jesus is not helping anybody. Jesus is the way many people find happiness, so I'm cool with him. Jesus is a crutch for the feeble-minded, a lie, my best friend. Jesus is a way around taxes. Jesus is watching you run those red lights. Jesus is the one who saved me from myself. Jesus is just a regular prophet who got stabbed in the back by his people. And those answers are one are different than the ones on the screen. I took a screenshot, right? So they just keep cycling through over and over, submitted by real people who have their own opinions, and get this, have their own theories about who Jesus is. Because not much has changed in 2,000 years. I mean, look at that last one, a regular prophet who got stabbed in the back by his people. That could be the message paraphrase right out of Matthew 16. There are other answers. Some were good and some were really bad. All of them are interesting. We still have our theories about Jesus, and there really is no way around it. At some point, we all have to answer for ourselves Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? To be a part of the plan, this is the first step, Jesus' question. Well, I go to church. Not the answer. Well, I try to be a good person, or I am a good person. Still not the answer. Still not what Jesus is looking for. And here's the thing. Your parents can't answer this question for you. And that's true whether you're 12 or whether you're 50. And your spouse can't answer this question for you. Or your community group leaders or your pastors. Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? And if you decide to try to just dismiss him or ignore him, then how do you explain what happened in the story next? How do you account for the empty tomb, the resurrection? Why wouldn't Jesus' enemies have just produced the body to end it already? How do you account for his resurrection appearances? The fact that hundreds of eyewitnesses saw him, flesh and blood, walking the earth after he had already died. Or how did the disciples go from cowards who ran away to willing martyrs who gave up their lives. Isn't that one of the funniest parts of the Gospels? A lot of the writers of the Gospels were the guys who had to write themselves into stories as the ones who ran away. Would you you have done that if it wasn't true? I know I wouldn't have. How do they make that transition if Jesus isn't who Peter said he was? If Jesus wasn't the chosen one who died and then three days later rose again? Or how would you account... For Christ Community Church, because when this happened, it was 2,000 years ago and 6,000 miles away. How would we have made it if the message wasn't true, if Jesus who wasn't who he said he was? How would the message have reached us in Kansas City and transformed our lives and made this church here? Or how about the countless churches in every place around the world, even in places where Christians are oppressed? I mean, think about that. Today, there are still so many places where Christians are killed for their faith, and yet, instead of killing the church in those areas, the church often survives and even thrives there. How do we explain that if Jesus isn't who he said he was? For most Christians, life gets harder with Jesus, not easier. 
but the church is still here. And one of my favorite quotes is by G.K. Chesterton, a Christian author and theologian, and he wrote this. He said, time and time again, the Christian faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. But each time, it was the dog that died. You see, we're the plan, and there is no plan B. So are you a part of it? Are you a part of the plan? Who do you say that Jesus is? And I love it because Peter, again, he nails the answer. Jesus affirms the answer that Peter gives in verse 17. And then Jesus' big moment and he says, great, now go to church. And I have to just imagine the disciples doing a double take. Like, wait, what, Jesus? (laughs) Go to church? What are you talking about? But this gets at something really important because what it shows us is that church is not for Jesus. Church for Jesus is not just something that you go to. It's something that you are. It's an identity. And that's where we see the second aspect of the plan. The plan begins with a person, Jesus, and it's also a call to action. The plan is a call to action. Verse 18 of our passage, Jesus says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, Jesus says, which he's not talking about opening up a construction company and and constructing church buildings. No, what Jesus has in mind here and the word that he uses for church is ecclesia, which literally means the ones called out. Jesus is talking about building a people, about building a people. Because at this time, the word ecclesia was commonly used for a gathering of people in a local setting centered around a common purpose and message. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's building a movement of people who are centered around the message of himself. The message of himself that he is the chosen one sent to save and heal the world. And that should be the big takeaway from this verse. Remember, Jesus says, I will build my church. It's his church, Jesus' church, not mine, not yours, and not even Peter's. Because you see, that's the big debate that's kind of happened over verse 18 in this passage. There's a little bit of confusion where Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And Christians for thousands of years have wondered, what is the rock that Jesus is talking about? Is it Peter, the person himself, or is it the confession that Peter just made about Jesus being the Christ? And I'm not going to solve it this morning, (laughs) but probably I think that it's a little bit of both. Because you see, we can't undersell, or I mean rather we can't oversell the importance of Peter's role in the early church. I mean, Acts chapters 1 through 9 are basically all about Peter and what God does through him. He was a very central character, obviously so. But on the other side, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. That is what separates our faith from any others. So both of these are really, really central. And to dissolve into a debate between them, it really misses the central point of verse 18, which is, once again, the fact that this is Jesus' church. It's his church, it's his movement, it's his call to action. And in Jesus' movement, if you're a part of it, it doesn't get to be something that's passive for you. 
Church can't just be a place where you fill your spiritual tank or where you get some things tuned up or where you find a little entertainment or a place for your kids to go for an hour and 15 minutes. It can't be just that. Because that's a really narrow, thin vision of what Jesus meant by the church. If that's all he's building, I'm not sure I want to be a part of it. But it's not. Church is so much more than those things. It's a people collected together to accomplish a God-ordained task and mission. The plan is a call to action. And Jesus shows that in this passage by using two action-laden imagery items to talk about the task of the church. The first is where Matthew says that he gives his followers the keys to the kingdom. Jesus says, I give to the church the keys of the kingdom. The church holds the keys. And I remember, as I'm sure many of you do, or, or if you're younger, you're hoping for this moment, but I remember when I was in high school and I got my first set of car keys. It was to a 1994 reddish-purple Saturn S series that I shared with my Nana. That's right. I shared my first car with my grandmother, and it wasn't exactly uh, the coolest car, but I loved it. Because even though I had to work out the schedule with my grandma to use it, and even though it was not the greatest color and a 94 Saturn, this car gave me freedom. It gave me access, access to a whole new world. And just as I held the keys to the Saturn, the church holds the keys to the kingdom of God. Jesus handed them over. And that feels like an overstatement. Jesus handed over the keys, but that's what Jesus says here to Peter. Listen to this. The movement that Jesus is building as described as the access point to the things of God on earth. Think about the significance of that. The movement of people that Jesus is building is described as the access point to the things of God on earth. Just like the keys to a car unlock a whole new world to a teenager, this new community opens the door to God's kingdom. That's what it means that the church has the keys. So we should be throwing the doors wide open and inviting people in. Because remember, the plan is a call to action. And later in the book of Matthew, there's this really sobering moment where Jesus once again confronts the religious leaders on this exact point. And what he says to them is this. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That's sobering. The church has the keys to the kingdom of heaven and we need to look ourselves in the mirror and say, are we throwing the doors wide open and inviting everyone in or are we being like the religious leaders of the day and slamming the door shut? Because that's not who the church should be in the world. We have been entrusted with the keys to the kingdom, so let's use them. Let's open the doors and invite people in. And the imagery continues after this. Jesus says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And at first blush, this is a scary thought, isn't it? The gates of hell. And it sounds a bit like hell is out to get us. Uh, so maybe what the church should do is, is hunker down and keep to ourselves so that the big bad world won't get us. But that totally misses Jesus' point because gates aren't offensive weapons. Gates are defensive structures. We can't miss that Jesus is saying here, not that the church is scared and defenseless, but he's saying that hell is scared and defenseless. That's a bit different, isn't it? Hell is on its heels. 
Hell is putting up the defensive structures, not the church. Yes, there is a rival kingdom to God's in this world that has a lot of territory. We see it every day, don't we? It's where evil lives and reigns and seems to be spreading without hindrance. And it can feel like the church is on its heels, backpedaling into a cosmic corner of certain defeat. I feel that way every time I flip on the news, to be honest. But Jesus says just the opposite. He says just the opposite. He says, my church is storming the gates with a mission to reclaim the territory that has been lost to sin and death. That's what Jesus says the church is doing. And we don't fight that fight with physical strength or military might or political power, but rather we fight it in humility and in weakness. We fight that battle in the way of Jesus, in the way of the cross. We fight what is broken and evil. We fight against injustice and pain, against poverty and racism and oppression, against suffering and sin. The church fights against death itself. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is who you are. This is what you've been called to. But not alone. Because that would just be a tad overwhelming, wouldn't it? No, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're storming the gates of hell with the keys to the kingdom with every other single person who has ever said Jesus is the Christ. I believe Literally millions and millions and millions of people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus and live for him. Together, we don't hide from evil. Together, we don't fear hell. Together, we're not worried about death or sin or the devil. And when it comes to the gates of hell, together, we're the ones who knock. And I know, that still feels really overwhelming. But we're in it together. And so I want to ask you this morning, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I know the church has problems. I know it's messy. I know it can sometimes be boring and ineffective. But it's Jesus' plan A. And there is no plan B. So why not work to make it better? If you're waiting for the perfect church or until you agree with everything or until you like everyone sitting around you or until you have all your needs met, you're going to be waiting a long time. And most likely, you'll just hop from church to church to church, and you'll miss out on what Jesus has for you. And here's the thing, not only will you miss out on what Jesus has for you, but we'll miss out too, because we need each other. Pressing into our deep need for one another is how we learn that church isn't ultimately about a building. It's about the people that God is building, that Jesus is building. And what's fun is that I look out here this morning and I see so many of you who weren't here when we started four years ago. I wasn't here when we started this in Brookside four years ago. I've been welcomed in. You've been welcomed in. You've found this community, this local expression of the people that God is building, this movement that God is building. And now I look out and I see new faces and people who've been here from the beginning and we're a part of this together We're a part of this mission. And our mission as a church is to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. That's a big mission. It's an overwhelming mission. That's a mission that, to be honest, we do fail at a lot, but we're committed to it. 
And not just as a staff, we invite you into it. You have to be committed to it with us. Committed to doing that work together as a church. We fight this battle and storm the gates of hell by loving others, sacrificing for them, welcoming people in, caring for the vulnerable and the oppressed. And we don't just do that here either, right? We also do that at home and at school and at work because the church gathered is important. But where this thing really, where the rubber really meets the road is where we're the church scattered. And we go from this place and do those things. And we go from this place on mission to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus. We do it in our work with Christo Ray. Thank you for the incredible response to that drive, supporting those students that are going to go off to college. We do it in our partnership with the 11th Hour Network, a church planning network in Eastern Africa. And we do do it here on Sunday mornings. The church gathered is important. It's where we come together and we remind one another through the preaching of the word, through prayer, through confession, through singing songs with one another. It's where we remind ourselves of the good news that God has welcomed us in and made us part of the family. Yes, we have a long way to go, both the capital C church and Christ Community Church, but we're the plan, and there is no plan B. So are you following this? It's crazy. Jesus picks ordinary and broken and needy people. Look around and look up here. There's no superheroes in this room this morning. And there were no superheroes at the start either. What a mess those first disciples were which is why there can be no arrogance or triumphalism in the church because Jesus picks sinners like me, like you, and then he gives them this impossible task. Hey, you know everything that's broken in the world? Get started fixing that. And that's why our final point this morning is really mind-blowing because Jesus gives the church that impossible task and then he says, and get this, the plan will not fail. The church will not fail. The plan will not fail. And as crazy as that may seem, as unbelievable as that may seem, for 2,000 years, it hasn't failed. The church has survived the crucifixion and the Colosseum and every other attempt since to destroy it. Every other attempt since to destroy it. And I know we look around the world right now and we get nervous because things don't look that great. They don't but the church has survived much worse. The church has even thrived through much worse because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What other investment gets that kind of guarantee? What else in life is so secure? I showed this picture earlier, the ruins of the temple to Pan in Caesarea Philippi. This is where Jesus was in this city when, he made, when Peter made his confession of Jesus. And right next to this temple is a cave that commonly referred to in the ancient world as the gates of hell. It was thought in pagan contexts to be the place of death and darkness, to be the place where death comes out at night to play. And we don't know if Jesus was right there by this cave or even if it was on his mind, but we know that Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi where this cave is. And we know that Jesus says this, this mind-blowing, unbelievable phrase. He says, not even death can stop the church. Think about this with me, right? Jesus in Caesarea Philippi 
is in the Roman Empire, the greatest empire that the world had ever known to that point. And he looks around at it. He looks around at all the darkness and he looks around even at death. And then he turns to his disciples, just him and 12 Jewish guys. And he says, you and me, we're going to outlast all of this. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being one of the 12 at that moment? Because they know, they know that everything and everyone dies, right? Kings and queens die. Empires and countries die. Political ideologies die. Nothing outlasts death. But Jesus says, I will, we will, the church will. Nothing can stop it. Professor and scholar D.A. Carson says this about the church, reflecting upon this passage in Matthew 16. He writes, Because the church is the assembly of people Jesus is building, it cannot die. Now, this claim is ridiculous if Jesus is nothing but an overconfident popular preacher in an unimportant vassal state of first century Rome. But it is the basis of all hope for those who see Jesus as the Messiah who builds his people. Church, Above all, Jesus' promises here in Matthew 16 should give us hope. And that's our final question for this morning. Are we fueled by hope? Not by selfish ambition or power. Not by self-importance or a desire to be right. Not even by relevance or effectiveness. But are we fueled by hope? Because where else today can you find hope? Where else can you find progress Does anybody really think that we're getting better as humans as we move along the access of history? Should we look to technology, politics, education, family, money? These aren't bad things at all. They're important, but when we try to fix the world with them, they fall short. It is only here in the church as part of this people, this movement, that we find hope. And I know that we're all at different places this morning. Some of you are probably laughing on the inside at how ridiculous all of this is or seems to you because you've seen up close and personal how messy the church can be. And you're out. You're like, I I can't do it. Others of you are committed and all in and everywhere in between. So the action step for this morning is really simple no matter where you're at. I want to challenge you to try it. Try church. And not just coming and attending, but really being and belonging. For some of you, that's going to require setting aside some of your cynicism to find out who Jesus is. Some of you need to answer the question for yourself, who do you say that I am? For others, it'll mean not just putting your toes in the water, but jumping in to swim for a while. Not just kind of sliding in and then sliding out, but actually being here, belonging here, getting to know some people and allowing others to get to know you. Joining a community group, committing, becoming a member. For others, the next step will be finding a place to serve here at Christ Community or outside these walls. Inside, we have needs in children's ministries and on the parking team. Let me know if you'd like your next step to be serving in one of those areas. Or maybe your next step will be starting or continuing to give generously to the church, not just of your time and your talent, but of your treasures too. 
And I know that it might be awkward for the pastor to talk about money, or some people might think that, but what we say here at Christ Community about finances, we really mean it's about what we want for you, not from you. And that may sound unbelievable for a church to make that claim. Be here with us for a while and test us on that. We really believe what Jesus said, that it is more, it is more blessed to give than receive. And that giving to the local church is part of God's design, and that's a good thing. So maybe for some of you, that'll be the next step. Or for others, and I know I count myself in this camp, we've got the keys, right? We need to throw the doors wide open and tell people about how great Jesus is and invite them here. Maybe that's your next step. And I know that so many of you are doing these things. You believe against all odds that this is really God's plan and that there is something beautiful about God's redemption through his people. You are his church. Keep it up and be encouraged. Your efforts are not in vain. God is on the move through you. You know, in C.S. Lewis's A Lion, a Witch, in a Wardrobe, that is one of my favorite scenes when the four children, I don't know if you've read this or seen either of the movie adaptations, but the four children are with the talking beavers. And if you haven't seen it, I've totally lost you. <laughs> like, there's talking beavers, I'm out. Uh, but the God character in this beautiful story is a character named Aslan. And the, the children, the four children of Care Paravel, they have not met Aslan yet, and they're talking about him. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. I love that scene. I love that part in the book. And when I think about what God is doing through Christ's community, that's what I think of. God is on the move. And those of you that have said that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, those of you that are a part of the plan, God is on the move. God is on the move. We're the plan and there is no plan B. It's not about us, nor is it by our own strength, right? I mean, we couldn't do this by ourselves. But it's about Jesus and his spirit at work within us. And the work that we begin, he will finish. And Jesus was so sure of this plan that he died for her, his bride, the church. And then he rose again, defeating death three days later. And I'm so glad that that happened because for me that has meant redemption in my life. It has meant redemption in my family's life. And I know that that's true for so many of you. The world today is a place that desperately needs hope. And we find that, we find that in Jesus' church. May we be faithful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you didn't leave us alone on this plan, on this mission. Because it is overwhelming and the gates of hell, while defensive, are still terrifying. And I'm glad that you sent your spirit to live in and among us, to empower us to do this work. And I pray, Lord, that since we have the keys, we would throw the doors wide open and invite people into the kingdom to join us on this earth renewal project, on this saving and redeeming work that your son Jesus started. Thank you that there is a plan. We're humbled to be a part of it. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.